This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful, grateful for your word. For your word is the source of truth, the source of life. It is through your word that we understand our salvation, we understand our need for salvation, we understand all the magnificent things that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and what you have provided for us in our new life as believers in him. Father, we recognize also that as believers in Christ, there comes with that new position, the new family responsibilities that are part of that, should be part of our life and should demonstrate who we are as members of your royal family. Now, Father, we pray as we continue our study today in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that you would challenge us with how these principles impact our own thinking and apply to our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Just by way of review, I want to remind everyone, in fact, there's some here who probably weren't here the last couple of weeks as we began our study here, is that Matthew chapter 5 is not an address to unbelievers. It is addressed to believers. It is addressed to Jesus' disciples. Now, I know that the term disciple is a term that is sometimes used of unbelievers. Judas Iscariot is the most prominent example of someone in the New Testament who was, or in the Gospels, who's not a believer, but who is also referred to as a disciple. But primarily in the context of Matthew, a disciple is viewed as a believer who has accepted the challenge to go forward in spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. As we will see, this is not necessarily inevitable. Just because someone trusts Christ as Savior does not mean that they will continue to grow. And even those who at some point in their life accept the challenges of being a disciple and pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, it does not mean that they will continue that. For every single day is a new test for us, a new challenge as to whether or not we are going to uh, stay the course whether or not we are continue to go forward in our spiritual growth or whether we are going to uh, lapse back into a walk according to the sin nature. In Matthew chapter 4 
as Matthew has organized his gospel, there's the challenge uh, to at least four disciples presented there that they should follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The way Matthew is organizing his gospel is designed to teach us something that the call of the disciples precedes the challenge to the disciples in Matthew chapter 5 as to how a disciple shall live. Discipleship is a major theme or sub-theme in the, the gospel of Matthew. The primary theme is the presentation of Jesus as the promised and prophesied Messiah and the offer of the kingdom and what happened to that offer of the kingdom because the uh, Jews rejected him as Messiah. So a sub-theme has to do with his teaching, his instruction, his guidance, his disciples. It begins with, in terms of his public ministry with the call of the disciples. Then there's instruction several times in Matthew in relation to uh, the disciples and what it means to be a disciple. And then Matthew closes his gospel with the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to his uh, disciples, the eleven at that point, that they are to go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things. It is that emphasis on instruction that is also at the core of the Gospel of Matthew, for there are uh, basically five different large blocks of instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, the first of which is the what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've, as we got into the sermon, I pointed out that the prologue or the introduction is this section in chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 12, which is usually referred to as the Beatitudes. This is a section dealing with character. Each begins with a uh, phrase, uh, the word blessed, followed by a certain character quality that is then explained in the second line, indicated by the word for, which should probably be translated because, and it gives us a little more of a meaning. I pointed out last time that the basic meaning of the word makarios, which is translated blessed, has the idea of being happy, not in an ephemeral sense, not in a sense based on positive circumstances or pleasant emotions, but on having our mental attitude grounded upon eternal truths based on our relationship with God. In terms of the organization of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the setting given in the first two verses. Then in the section we're studying now, verses 3 through 16, we have a focus on the character and then the calling of those who will inherit the kingdom or those who would inherit the kingdom. I also pointed out that this phrase, inherit the kingdom, sometimes the phrase entering the kingdom, as we'll see, are not terms that indicate uh, getting into heaven or receiving eternal life. They are instead terms that are used of disciples who pursue spiritual maturity and are related to the uh the realization of blessings and rewards in the kingdom. So we'll develop that more as we go through this. Then the main part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is from 517. 
through 712, which focuses on an explanation of experiential righteousness, which should characterize all those who will inherit the kingdom. And then the last part in the last half of chapter 7 focuses on several warnings from the king. So we saw that as Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee, he goes up onto a mountain and he is seated and his disciples come to him. Now, at this point, at least in Matthew's organization, he has not called the twelve. Luke's organization has him calling the twelve prior to this, but there is some debate as to the chronological order of these events and whether the actually the Sermon on the Plain is described in Luke 6 is identical to the Sermon on the Mount. There are certainly parallels. I think they are uh, parallel, at least at this point in my study. As I said, there's a lot of debate over some of these aspects in the synoptics. But it seems to me that Matthew organizes his material more topically rather than chronologically, and so we can't necessarily... Uh, base uh, a conclusion on the structure within Matthew, whereas Luke consistently follows a, a, um, a chronological pattern. So when Luke puts the calling of the Twelve prior to the Sermon on the Plain, that is likely. Matthew will put it later on in Matthew 9, but remember Matthew tends to lump events together in order to express certain themes or ideas rather than uh, putting them in sequential events. As, as Westerners today, we think only in terms of uh, sequential events, but that is not necessarily how writers of the ancient world wrote, and it's certainly not how some of the Gospels are written. They are not written to be sequential histories or biographies, but to present the claims of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, last time, as we saw looked over the beginning of chapter 5, we saw that Jesus emphasized four uh, or three character qualities. The first three we looked at last time, and all three of these seem to emphasize the core uh, character quality of humility. The first speaks of being poor in spirit, and this is someone who recognizes that they bring absolutely nothing to the table that brings uh, that should bring any approbation from God, we recognize that we have nothing for which we should gain approval, and we live a life based on that humility, recognizing that God is the one who supplies everything. And remember, he is already talk, talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to his disciples. So he's talking about something that's in addition to the initial humility they had where they trusted in Christ or trusted in him as Savior or in this at this time in his ministry believing in the gospel of the kingdom. So they have already believed that. They are already regenerate. So what he Jesus is teaching them here is something in addition to getting eternal life or becoming regenerate. In verse 4, those he says, Blessed are those who grieve, for they shall be comforted. And as I pointed out last time, this too has a reference to humility, a recognition of grief over over sin, over failure, a recognition of a failure in our own life, 
and the fact that it is God who supplies the real comfort for us. And then the third character, blessed are the meek. This is the idea of humility, which in the scripture really emphasizes authority orientation. The meekest man in the Bible was Moses in the Old Testament, certainly a man of strong character, a man of tremendous leadership ability, not someone who was a weak or wimpy uh, individual who's just rolled over by people. That's often the idea that people think of when they hear the word uh, meek. They often think the meek or the weak, but the meek are the strong, but they're strong because they're recognize authority correctly. And this is the result of being meek is that you shall inherit the earth. Again, a term related to future rewards and responsibilities in the coming kingdom. Now we come to verse 6. Verse 6, we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, there is a, one of the problems that we've had in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, and as I pointed out last time, there's a, a, you, you can barely pick up uh, two authors that agree completely on how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. It is one of the more, more challenging passages of the Gospels to understand. But when we understand, first of all, that Jesus is addressing believers on how they should live, and not addressing unbelievers on how they get eternal life, that changes the dynamic a tremendous amount. Secondly, we recognize that this is given to those who are in anticipation, or who, those who are anticipating the coming of the kingdom, for they have responded to the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so Jesus is giving them the ethic or the standard of living for those who will are being prepared to live in the kingdom. And so all of these connect together in terms of how the person anticipating the kingdom should live. So it's not necessarily dispensationally restricted, even though at this time he is talking to those who are under the Mosaic law. There, the ethics here are for all time, and I'm going to be showing you this, and I have shown you this as we've looked at each of these character qualities, how they are also emphasized and continue to be emphasized throughout uh, throughout the New Testament. Now, just in terms of structure, I want you to look at what we have here in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the first time that he mentions righteousness in the sermon, but this is a major theme within the Sermon on the Mount. For what Jesus is showing is that the righteousness that God is expecting in the lives of the citizens, of those who would be the citizens of the kingdom, is a different kind of righteousness than that which is proclaimed by the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not a superficial righteousness. This is what took place during the latter part of the Second Temple period in Israel, is that under the teaching of the Pharisees, righteousness, experiential righteousness, was reduced to basically the observance of ritual and some basic principles of external morality without any emphasis on the heart or mentality of the individual. Remember, they're under the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law treated the Israelites as believers in Deuteronomy, 
And there Moses said that their responsibility was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The core ethic, the core spirituality of the Mosaic law was an internal relationship with God that was to be manifested through the externals of the ritual and the observance of the ritual in the temple uh, and not just an external ritualization. This is why later on, as Israel became rebellious to God and succumbed to idolatry, nevertheless, they still went through the external acts of sacrifice. Uh, the Lord commanded them or rebuked them by saying that he uh, demanded love for him, not just sacrifice. So the emphasis in the Old Testament was always on the core internal spiritual relationship with God, not on just an external ritual observance. But by the second temple period, under the Pharisees, righteousness was restricted to just this external ritual obedience. So Jesus is countering that in each of these Beatitudes, and here he's talking about the the value of hungering and thirsting, which is a metaphor for just having a, a passionate desire for something, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it's a particular kind of righteousness, not the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. For the scribes and the Pharisees were often concerned about enforcing some sort of external standard upon the people. It was a superficial and hypocritical righteousness, and they were more concerned about the righteousness of those around them as they defined it, rather than this internal change or transformation that came as a result of someone's personal relationship with God. And so the hunger and thirst for righteousness, while it is primarily directed to the individual's desire in his own life, it also has a, an implication for the world around us. We see a world around us that is characterized by unrighteousness, and we desire to live in an environment characterized by righteousness. But true humility-based righteousness does not go out and try to impose that on other people. That is arrogant self-righteousness. So Jesus ties these things together, and I want you to notice the connection here. In verse 6, there's the emphasis on the passion for righteousness. But in verse 7, there's an emphasis on mercy. Mercy runs counter to those who are self-righteously imposing their standard of morality on other people. So, because they're not treating them in grace. Mercy is grace in action to those who are in dire straits, whether spiritually or physically. Then the next beatitude, verse 8, talks about those who are pure in heart. Pure here is not necessarily the best connotation of the noun that is used there in the Greek. The noun used there is katharos. Katharos is the word for ritual cleansing. Sometimes you, we might translate ritual purification, but it's the same, it's the noun form of the word that is used in 1 John 1 9. That if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's the word there. Katharizo is the verb. That's the word that's used there in 1 John 1 9. This is talking about someone who is 
constantly making sure that they are cleansed from any sin in their life because they are consistently confessing their sin because they want to walk by the Holy Spirit so that righteousness, experiential righteousness, can be developed uh, within them. So it is, again, we see that these attitudes in verse 6, 7, and 8 are based on the foundational attitudes in verses 3 through 5 related to humility. And from there we build the next beatitude, blessed in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, this is a verse not talking about uh, a positional reality in the believer's life or something that we have just because we're believers, but it is something that we apply in our life, and we'll see a connection to that as we go through our study this morning on experiential righteousness. And then in verse 10, we see the mention of righteousness again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so when we read in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we must recognize that there's a warning that comes at the end of the Beatitudes that those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness and pursue righteousness run the risk of being persecuted for righteousness. And yet there is a reward for that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this morning I just want to focus on verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The word there, as I pointed out in the introduction, is makarios, which means to be blessed or happy. It is a word that emphasizes a mental state, not an emotional uh, state. It emphasizes one's relationship to God, which brings a stability, tranquility, contentment, enjoyment of life, not on the basis of ephemeral circumstances or fleeting emotions, but are based on a something that is that is immutable. We cannot have a stable state of happiness if that happiness is based on that which changes. Everything in creation changes. Only God is unchanging, and so only by basing our happiness on the things of God can we have eternal, I mean, can we have, uh, have happiness and share that happiness with God. Now, we're told that, that this happiness is based on another value, another character trait, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We have two different verbs here. Both are present active participles used with an article which indicate basically they're describing a particular kind of person. The first is one who hungers. The first, second is one who thirsts. Now, the literal meaning of these terms refers to actual hunger and actual thirst, but they are often used metaphorically. And metaphorically, they describe a passion. For something, they describe someone who craves something, who has an intense desire for something, and often it is used to express something that should be a priority in our life. And that is how it is used here. This is someone who has a passionate desire for righteousness. The word dikaiosune, which has the connotation of righteousness, a moral, ethical value. Now, righteousness 
comes in two kinds, two flavors. The first is what we describe as as imputed righteousness. This is the righteousness that every believer possesses at the instant of salvation. At the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, God the Father, in a legal transaction, credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't look at us in terms of, of, our, uh, of our own personal immorality or unrighteousness. He looks at us in terms of the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ. That is our position in relation to God's justice. However, experientially, we all fail. We still have a sin nature, and we still sin. We can sin grievously. We can sin in ways that shock us, ways that that amaze us that we would have ever succumbed to such a sin. But the grace of God provides a solution because we are believers in Christ. Christ died for our sins. The sin penalty is paid for. We can't impress God with our penitential uh, attitude because God knows how many more times we will commit that sin or many other sins. What we do is we just remind uh, God and ourselves through confession. We admit or acknowledge that sin, and God forgives us. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, Scripture says. The basis for that is in 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Christ, that is the death of Christ on the cross, is the reason that we are cleansed from all sin. But Scripture says we are to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, and when we fail to walk by the Spirit, we are walking according to the sin nature. These are mutually exclusive. Uh, Sin permeates everything when we are walking according to the flesh, And so there has to be a means of cleansing to reverse the failure. That's confession, 1 John 1, 9. Now, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not hungering and thirsting for imputed righteousness because that is ours completely and totally and irreversibly at the instant of our faith in Christ. The other kind of righteousness mentioned in the Scripture is experiential righteousness, the righteousness that is produced in our lives as a result of our walk by God the Holy Spirit. As we apply the Word of God to our lives, and as we follow the leadership through the Word of God, of God the Holy Spirit, then He produces this experiential righteousness in our, in our lives. This is in contrast to the kind of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees were emphasizing. Romans 10.3 is Paul's uh, summary of that kind of righteousness, the false righteousness that was dominant in Second Temple Judaism. He's speaking about the Jews and Jewish concept of righteousness under the Pharisees. In Romans 10.3 he says, For they, that is the Pharisees and Pharisaical righteousness, They being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is what God has supplied for us, seek to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. So the New Testament continues this contrast between the false righteousness of the Pharisees, which is a workspace righteousness, versus the righteousness that God uh, expresses. The result of hungering and thirsting or having a passion for righteousness is that we will be filled. 
The word for filled here, which is the verb cortazo, is used often to refer to feeding or fattening cattle. It is derived from the basic uh, root word, which means uh, which means green grass, and it comes to mean to be fully satiated or satisfied. That when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then God will satisfy us. It is a future passive indicative. That means the fulfillment is at some point in the future, and God is the one who supplies it. It's a passive verb. We do not fill up ourselves. We receive that that uh, satisfaction, and that comes from God. This tells us, in line with other aspects in the Beatitudes, that the ultimate referent point of the Beatitudes and their fulfillment is in the future kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom is emphasized in uh, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, inheriting the earth, verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's a future fulfillment. It's challenging us to live a certain way now in light of a future destiny. This connection of experiential righteousness today with the future kingdom is also expressed in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The Apostle Paul says that the kingdom of God, and he's not talking about a present kingdom. There's no present form of the kingdom today. It has been postponed. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating, literally the word in the Greek. It's not a verb like we have in, in Matthew 5, 6. It's the noun for food. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink. That's how it should be translated. It's not a verb or a verbal. It's the, both words or nouns in the Greek. The kingdom of God is not food or drink, uh, food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what will characterize the future kingdom. So by walking by the Spirit today where he produces righteousness in our lives, we are in training and being prepared for that future kingdom. Now the passage that gives us the most instruction related to experiential righteousness is found in Romans chapter 6. So turn with me now to the uh, epistle to the Romans 6th chapter and we will begin at verse 12. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is laying the foundation for the spiritual life of the church age believer. That spiritual life is based, according to Paul's logical development in Romans, first on being justified. That justification from God comes as a result of having received the righteousness of Christ in imputation. This is described in Romans chapter 3 and 4 specifically. So in Romans chapter 6, what we see is the re- result of for the believer of those who have been justified in Christ. At the beginning of Romans chapter, Romans chapter 6, Paul lays down the foundation for our spiritual life. This is quite significant. Nothing like this ever, ever happened in the Old Testament. He is describing something unique to church-age believers that distinguishes church-age believers 
from every other believer in every other dispensation. He says in Romans 6, 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? No Old Testament saint was ever baptized into Christ. No tribulation saint will be baptized into Christ. This is a distinguishing feature of church-age believers. No millennial saint will be baptized into Christ. There might be something similar, but nothing that has been described in the Scriptures. In fact, when we have Scriptures uh, related to the tribulation, we have very little that talks about the spiritual life of the tribulation believer. Mostly we're focusing, the Scriptures focus on the events of the tribulation. But here in Romans 6.3, Paul lays down the foundation for the sanctification or the spiritual life of the individual believer. It is grounded upon the fact that we have been baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the implication from that, Paul draws out in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism uh, baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, it's important to notice the Greek verb there. It indicates potential, not actual. Paul is not saying that it is inevitable that the believer will walk in newness of life. He is saying that the implication is that the reality is that at salvation you're identified with Christ so that you might walk in newness of life. You should walk in newness of life is the point that he is making here. But we know that there are believers who do not walk in newness of life. Many times it's because they're never taught about it. Other times it's because they are rebellious children. They are still children nonetheless. In Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 5, Paul goes on to say that that um, we have been united together with Christ in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So in those verses, he lays down the foundation for our spiritual life. Verse 7, he brings out another implication. He says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, literally, this does not mean he has been freed from sin. That term isn't in the text. It is actually the perfect passive uh, uh, indicative of dikaiao, which is the word for righteousness. By receiving imputed righteousness, uh, we have, this righteousness has delivered us from the tyranny of the sin nature, but not the presence of the sin nature. So a break occurs. That never occurred before in history. No Old Testament saint had the power of sin nature in his life broken. Never happened. They were just as much a slave to the sin nature after salvation as before salvation. The only thing that can break the power of the sin nature is become dead to the sin nature. The only thing that can allow us to be dead to the sin nature is to be identified with the death of Christ. Until that happened, this never occurred. This is why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is as a distinguishing mark uh, for the church age and the church age believer. As a result of that, the fact that we died to sin we have a conclusion drawn in verse 11. 
Paul says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves. It's the Greek uh, verb legizomai, which indicates bringing our thinking to a logical conclusion. We're to consider ourselves to be truly dead to sin. In other words, don't live like you did before you were saved. When you were a slave to sin, that that master-slave relationship has been broken. Now live in light of your new master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, for now we are slaves to righteousness. I'm anticipating his, uh, his argument. Then in verse 12 he says, Therefore, as a result of understanding this, this spiritual transaction, this spiritual reality that, that the sin nature's power is broken and we're no longer slaves to sin, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, the fact that he continues with these imperatives to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies and other imperatives that we'll see coming up indicates that the Apostle Paul does not consider uh, this to be an inevitability in the life of the believer. If it was inevitable, he wouldn't have to tell us to do it. He tells us to do it because it's not inevitable. We have to come to understand the dynamics of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and then we have to incorporate that into our own thinking and implement it when we face temptation. We'll not always be successful, but the more we attempt to apply it and the more we are successful, the more we will uh we, we will grow. It takes time to reorient our thinking to this new reality of being free from the power and the authority of the sin nature. So in Romans 6.12, Paul says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its, in, its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now in verse 13, Paul uses two different forms of the word present in order to express his his imperatives, his commands. He says, do not present your members. This is a present active imperative, which means he's stating this as a the standard operating procedure for every single believer. It should be the ongoing reality in the life of every believer that we are not going to offer our members or our lives to unrighteous as unrighteousness and sin. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about experiential unrighteousness. As a believer, we should not let unrighteousness characterize our lives. He goes on to say, in contrast, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. This same verb is picked up, for those of you who are uh, going through the Thursday night study in Romans, this is the same idea that we have in... Um, in Romans 12.1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. Paul picks up this idea again in Romans 12.1 and 2 as the foundation for what he says in the remaining chapters in Romans. So the But the second present there is an aorist imperative, which means this is stated as the highest priority for the believer. 
we are to make sure that we present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead because we are alive from the dead. Too often, too many believers are walking around as as if, they're, as if they're still dead. This would be analogous to someone who has grown up under the tyranny of the Marxist uh, totalitarian system that characterized Soviet Russia. They manage to get out and they come to the West where they have freedom and yet they can no longer think in terms of freedom because the capacity for freedom was destroyed in them by their subservience under the uh, Soviet dictatorship. So they're very unhappy under freedom, just as many Jews or Israelites were unhappy under freedom when they escaped from Egypt. They couldn't live as free people because they rejected the teaching of God and they lived as slaves. They yearned for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They wanted to go back and live as slaves rather than to learn to live as free men. So this is the analogy here, they, that we were delivered from the tyranny of the sin nature, but we have to learn to live now as those who are free, who live in a different environment, and we don't want to put ourselves back under a system of slavery, which is what we had before we were saved. So Paul emphasizes this. He says, don't present your um, members as instruments of unrighteousness. This is experiential unrighteousness, but instead we're to present our members, that is our body, our whole self, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, as instruments of righteousness. This means experiential righteousness. We are to live a life that is characterized by the righteous standards of God. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We see this in the development of Paul's argument. I've put the whole passage up here from verses 15 through 19, so we see the context. He uses these rhetorical questions in verse 15 in order to focus our attention on what he is saying. He says, first, what then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, should we use this as an excuse for sin? Because we're now under grace, and the implication is, of course not. And that's what he says, certainly not. Then he has another question in verse 16. Do you not know? This is emphasizing the fact that they should have understood something. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? When we sin now, what we are basically saying is, I prefer to go back to the master-slave relationship of the sin nature. I don't care what Christ has done for me. I don't care about my new position in Christ. I prefer to be a slave to the sin nature. It's a choice. Before we were saved, you only had one nature, a sin nature. You only had one option, and that was to sin. Now you have an option not to sin. And so we are, Paul is challenging us that we are not to go back to that old relationship because what it implies is that we prefer the slavery to the sin nature. What we should do instead, and as he states it in the second half of the question, uh, what that, and that is we should present ourselves through obedience that leads to righteousness because when we're walking by the Spirit and we're obedient to God, God the Holy Spirit uses that to produce experiential righteousness in our lives. 
In verse 17, he goes on to say, But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, see, that's an aorist tense there, we are no longer slaves of sin. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine or that form of teaching to which you were delivered. In other words, they responded to the gospel. And having been set free from sin... But see, freedom from sin doesn't mean we don't sin. Otherwise, it wouldn't be necessary to say these things. Freedom from sin simply means freedom from the tyranny of the sin nature. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's our new position. We shifted owners at the point of salvation. We didn't go to a place of neutrality. We're still a slave. We just have a new master. Now we are slaves of righteousness. Paul then explains that he's using all of this as a metaphor to help us understand uh, understand the spiritual life and says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of the flesh. Flesh is another term for the sin nature. We still have a weakness because we still have a sin nature. He recognizes that. And he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Again, he uses an aorist imperative for present, indicating this is a priority. Now, because it's an imperative, it necessarily implies that we can choose to be disobedient. And sadly, too many believers choose to be disobedient, just live their lives in the same way that they did before they were saved. But the challenge for us is that now that we're new creatures in Christ, members of God's royal family, we need to live as if we are members of that family and not as we did prior to the time in which we were saved. I'm going to skip that slide, go to this slide, where Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Why? Because we know something. We've been taught something now. We've learned these principles. And so we are to present ourselves as slaves to obey. A obedience leads to righteousness. And so the uh, when he begins here saying, do you not know, he puts this in a perfect tense. It's a noun for, uh, noun for uh, oida, for knowledge, and it emphasizes a past-completed action, something we know, something we've come to know. But we need to apply it every day in many different ways. So what he's saying here is that we can present ourselves to sin as believers, and it leads to death, not spiritual death, but to a death-like existence in life. It's not a life of happiness. It's not the blessed life that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount that if we present ourselves to sin, then the sin nature produces corruption and death in our lives, and we we eviscerate our own spiritual life. We don't lose our spiritual life, but we're living as if we don't have it. Obedience, though, leads to righteousness. God the Holy Spirit produces that righteousness in our lives. Then in verse 17... Paul thanks God, and there's a couple of words there that should be retranslated. But God be thanked, and the next word should be translated because. The reason for that thanksgiving is that because you were slaves of sin, stating a reality. We were all slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart 
that form of teaching to which you were delivered. So that's the contrast. Because we trusted in Christ, the implication, uh, the passage here is referring back to being justified as discussed in Romans 3 and 4. And so now that we have been delivered, we are to live a different way. Having, in verse 6, uh, verse 18, he goes on to say, having been set free from sin. See, this is a completed action in the past. We became, at that instant, we became slaves of righteousness, or we can translate it as a uh, temporal participle when you were set free from sin, that is at the point of justification, you became slaves of righteousness. That is our new identity. Now, as we go to the last part of the chapter, verses 20 to 23, we see various explanations indicated by that initial part, uh, particle 4. It says, because when you were slaves of sin, that is, when you were an unbeliever, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, there was no righteousness in your life. No matter how much morality was there, it didn't produce anything of righteous value for God. And then he says in verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, did the things that you did before, the things you're now ashamed of, the things you now recognize as wrong, did that produce any eternal fruit in your life? No, of course not. He said the end of those things, the natural result of that is death. It produced an unsatisfied life. It produced unhappiness. It might have produced uh, ephemeral happiness. There might have been uh, moments of joy, moments of happiness, but it didn't produce true tranquility and contentment and joy in life. Then he contrasts our present uh, position in verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, which is our new state as believers, and having become slaves of God, this is now who we are, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now here's the question. Is the everlasting life here talking about the eternal life that we gain when we trust in Christ as Savior, or is it talking about something else? If it's talking about the eternal life we get as believers, we have a problem. Because faith in Christ is not based on works. Our salvation, that eternal life, is not based on works. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5. But here, uh, the, the fruit to holiness is talking about experiential righteousness that gives us a quality of life. See, the term everlasting life has two dimensions to it. It has a quantity dimension that is ongoing, never-ending life, but it also has a quality dimension, a depth dimension to it. So that this is what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 10 when he says, I came not only to give life, but to give it abundantly. It's what we talk about as the uh, abundant life, the life of the mature believer. So this is what happens in verses 22 and 23. Having been set free from sin, we can pursue real life. See, if the result of, of our life after we're saved, living according to the sin nature, produces a death-like experience, then the opposite, that is living according to God's word and applying his word in our life, that will produce 
true depth of life and quality of life. So neither the death nor the life here, which are being contrasted, are talking about eternal condemnation or eternal life in heaven. One is talking about the believer who produces self-induced misery and self-destruction in his own life because he continues to live according to the sin nature versus the believer who is living according to the word of God and experiences that blessed state that Jesus is speaking of in in Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7. If we want to have true happiness and joy in life, and experience abundant life, then this is the result of an ongoing walk by the Holy Spirit, being presenting ourselves as slaves to obedience and righteousness rather than slaves to the sin nature after we are saved. That leads us to verse 23, which is often taken to be a salvation verse, but in context it's not talking about getting justified. That was discussed in Romans 3 through 4, It's talking about the results of living and presenting ourselves as slaves to the the sin nature. For the wages of sin is death. See, this is the same thing that he, he, he says earlier. The end of those things was death before we were saved, and if we still live according to the sin nature, it still produces death, not eternal death. We can't lose our salvation. Our destiny is still heaven. But if you're living like an unbeliever, you're going to have the same consequences in your life today. You're going to have misery and unhappiness. So the result of living according to the sin nature is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What he's reminding us of there is that the gift of God at salvation was eternal life. Didn't just have an uh, an eternal uh, dimension to it a quantity dimension to it. It has a quality dimension to it. And the only way we realize that quality dimension is to walk by the sin nature, I mean, walk by the Holy Spirit. So this is his conclusion. The emphasis in um, then goes back to the fact that when we were slaves of sin, we had no, no righteousness. Well, I duplicated a slide there. It shouldn't be there. Okay. This emphasis on pursuing righteousness is brought out numerous times in other epistles. For example, in 1 Timothy 6.11 and in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul commands Timothy to pursue righteousness. That's the same idea as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 1 Timothy 6.11, But you, O man of God, flee these things, that is, leave behind the sin that he's mentioned earlier. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, that's the spiritual life, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. In Second Timothy 2.22, he says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness. It's the same idea Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5.6. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As a result, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, see the emphasis is on the judgment seat of Christ, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. 
those who love his appearing, not just those who anticipate and desire the rapture to occur, but it's those who recognize that at the time of the rapture, we're going to be taken to be with the Lord in the air, and following that's the judgment seat of Christ. We're looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ because we have pursued righteousness, and there we will receive rewards, and there we will hear those words from our Savior, well done, thou good and perfect servant. 1 John 3, 7, and 10 also emphasizes this. Talking to believers, John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. He's talking about experiential righteousness. Verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We studied this in detail. These are fellowship verses, not salvation verses that the person who is a believer and practices righteousness is going to demonstrate his family relationship in terms of his relationship with God. The one who doesn't is living as if he is a child of the devil. And so what we see here is the challenge to each of us, that we are not to take our salvation uh, lightly, but that at the instant of justification, we're also adopted into God's royal family where there's a new standard of living. We are to live according to that standard, which includes a hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that as a result of that, we can experience the abundant life that God has, has provided for us and that we can enjoy all of the blessings in time that God has for us, which is summarized in the term blessed, which means to be happy or to be fulfilled in this life because of our relationship to God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on these things this morning and to be reminded that, that spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is, are not inevitable that we have a responsibility to live in light of our new position in Christ, to live in light of our new family relationship with you, that we are now uh, your children. But there's a new standard for us, and we need to recognize what you've provided for us in terms of our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and no longer live as we did before we were saved, but now live in light of our new nature in Christ. Father, we also recognize there may be someone here who has never never trusted in Christ as Savior. They're not sure about their eternal life. They're not sure about their eternal destiny. Right now, I want to make this clear. Salvation is not based on works. Salvation is based on the work of Christ on the cross. He died there as our substitute. He paid our penalty so that by Faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal life. Simply by believing in him, trusting in him, we have eternal life. Ninety-six times the Apostle John uses the verb believe. That's the issue. Not believe and join a church, not believe and change your life, not believe in any other thing, simply to trust in Christ alone for salvation, and you have eternal life. That's how we receive this free gift of eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you might keep us mindful of what we study today, that we might truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we might grow to maturity, and that you might be glorified in every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.